statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Inspirational women are increasingly popular in the news and media, but many go unheard and their stories are never told. Women to Watch with Susan Rocco captures the stories of many women who truly make a difference. Women to Watch is the vehicle for developing new leaders, encouraging younger generations, and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860 and net. My name is Sue Rocco, and I'm excited this afternoon to have a wonderful guest with me uh, live in the studio, who I will introduce in just a few minutes. Uh, but before we get to her, um, we have our monthly financial contributor with us at the top of the show, Kristen Hillsley from Robert H., excuse me, Robert W. Baird, who's going to be sharing some really important information with us around the economy and the stock market and, and what the outlook is for 2018. So, Kristen, welcome to the show. Hi, Sue. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. This is a really important topic in light of, you know, what's been all over the news the past week or two or three. I know, I know. Well, everyone's wondering. Always, yeah, everyone's yeah. wondering what's what's really going on and what's going to happen. So hopefully you can clear it up for us. Well, I wish I could be very clear, but um, unfortunately the job of, you know, the, the economists is always so difficult because they're trying to predict what's going to happen in the future. And, and it's just one of those things that we can't really identify. But um, we have a great team of economists at Baird um, that really help guide us and help shape our strategy and how we advise clients. And so they recently put out the 2018 Outlook um, about some things that we could see on the horizon for next year. Um, one of the most important things I think that is important for your listeners is that we have to kind of take a moment to be very grateful for what happened in 2017 from a market perspective and an investment perspective. So when we look at this past year, I mean, from November of last year of 2016 to November this year of 2017, the market has almost just had continuous um, positive month-to-month -month returns and has only ever pulled back about 3% at one time, and that's in the last 12 months. So that's a really nice easy ride. The S&P 500 is up almost 22% for the year. Um, so our economists were very conscientious to tell us that we should be very thankful for the year that we have had this year, but also to inform us that, you know, they're years like this are typically followed by more volatile years. And so investors kind of have to re-adjust um, to the fact that, you know, there could be volatility on the horizon, and there's a lot of things that could trigger that volatility. Um, some things that we are looking at um, are, you know, earnings 
could slow down. There's, there's three main ones. We're looking for a potential of slowed earnings with stock prices that are pretty high right now by all metrics. The second thing is most central banks around the world are raising interest rates, which could slow things down. And the other thing, too, which, I mean, we have been just inundated with politics, but um, midterm elections are in November of next year. So, you know, campaigns are going to be starting, and that can cause some disruptions. So we just want to remind people that while this year was wonderful, things like this don't always last. And probably the best thing that you can do is look at your asset allocation and say, what am I the most comfortable with? If I started out the year with 50% stocks and 50% bonds, and now because my portfolio has grown on the stock side so much, maybe I'm at 60% stocks and 40% bonds. If we start seeing more volatility, and that, and, and when I say volatility, just to take a moment, you know, you could see a 5% pullback. You could see a 10% correction. You could see a 20% correction. And you have to remember that if you have now 60% of your stock portf of your portfolio invested in stocks, and that goes down by 20%, how are you going to feel? And the worst investment moves are those that are made when we're anxious or nervous or scared. So we just were trying to remind people not to be super complacent with this continuously rising um, market that we've seen. Kristen, a question I have for you is you were talking about earnings, and um, there's always so many variables, and for us lay folks that don't quite grasp the whole picture, when we hear the news and numbers about unemployment um, going down, would that not directly correlate with, with earnings numbers and the fact that it would be, you know, there'd be a more positive um, economy on the horizon? Mm -hmm. Well, yes, that's, I mean, that's definitely true. So if we look, I mean, the last data that we have um, of, of wages is from 2016. And we are seeing that people's wages are going up. And we're seeing that more people are working. But what we do, um, when we look at stocks, you know, let's say you're looking at investing in Johnson & Johnson, which is much more expensive today than it was, you know, 12 months ago. We have to say to ourselves, okay, what am I really getting when I'm buying this particular stock? And there's a number that we use called a P.E. ratio. It's a price-to-earnings ratio. And when we look historically, on average, that P.E. ratio is a number of 17. Right now, if we look at a P.E. ratio, that number is 25. And typically, when we think about 25 as the current P.E. ratio, that's really high. What that means is that Johnson & Johnson is going to have to continue with their their acquisition strategy. They're going to have to continue to sell their goods and services, and they're going to continue to have to make that current price of theirs valuable for you and for your listeners when you go out and you want to invest new money um, into the market. And so if we see the market continue to grow at the rate that it has, and that we've seen two consecutive quarters of GDP growth at 3%, so if the market continues to grow, there's a really good chance that these companies that are expensive today are worth paying that expensive price. 
But our fear is that, you know, if, if like, like, right, like, like this year earnings grew at about 18%. Next year, the, the forecasts that are out there are that earnings are going to grow by another 15%. So that's two years in a row of double-digit earnings returns. And, you know, that might be a little bit lofty. So if that happens, um, those stocks that, that their stock price can really get hurt if they miss their earnings target targets or if they have to forecast their tar- their their numbers down downward so um that's where we are a little bit fearful and that you know you don't want to just have this kind of thought process that yeah it was 18% last year and this year it's going to be 15% and next year it's going to be it's it's at some point there's going to be volatility that's going to creep in but even though I might sound a little negative, there are a lot of reasons to be positive. And going into one of those reasons is that going into 2018, almost all areas of the world are seeing economic growth. And that's happening at the same time. So again, going back to the uh, the, um, Johnson & Johnson example, is that Johnson & Johnson, it might be a U.S. company, and we're growing nicely, but there are lots of other countries that are growing at a little bit of a faster rate than we are. And so we might have an expensive company in the U.S., but because it's a multinational, there's lots of growth opportunities for it. So the other thing that we would remind investors is that for a long time, it has not paid off, I guess you would say, to be an international investor, to invest overseas or, you know, in, a, in other parts of the world. Um, but now, this year, we've seen that other countries have outpaced, from a stock market perspective, have outpaced the U.S. So another thing that you want to do is check your international allocation and see if you have the appropriate exposures there because, you know, you look at companies like Switzerland and Germany and Australia, um, they're all growing at a little, at a faster rate than the U.S. So while we have exposure in those areas, there might be some opportunities abroad. Okay, that's great advice. That's great advice. Um, well, Kristen, listen, um, I always appreciate you stopping in and giving us some information that's pertinent to all of our um, careers. And uh, we'll be talking a little bit about design and architecture with my guest this afternoon, and I'll be curious to see um, you know, what's happening in her field. Um, but I wish you a very happy holiday, you and Patrick and the team, and we look forward to having you back next month. Oh, thanks so much, Sue. You as well. Thank you. Um, So now I'm very excited to introduce our very special guest this afternoon. I have with me live in the studio, Jory Shoshana Friedman. Um, A.K.A. Sash. Shosh. Shosh. Close. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Jury is the principal uh, and vice president with SB Architects based in Miami. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm so happy to have you here. We had a conversation um, a couple months back prior to the show and found out we have a, a little bit in common. You're a Philadelphia girl. Yes, Originally. Um, born and uh, raised in the Northeast. And if anybody's familiar with Philadelphia, you know that's a wonderful area um, to the Philadelphia community. And um, you were the middle child of three. That's correct. And uh, I'd love for you to just talk for a few minutes about those 
early years, your upbringing. Um, I know that your dad had his own business and your mom was a nurse. So I'm guessing a little bit of, uh, you know, their careers had a little bit to do with the shaping of your own. So um, just talk about those early years as a young jury. Okay, (laughs) sure. Yes, I am very fortunate to have had a really wonderful upbringing. Um, I can attribute that primarily to my parents, I would say, because they um, they chose their path, always with the three of us in mind. And I think they gave us some experiences that were probably unique um, to a lot of people and specifically to that area, um, including the place that we grew up, which was a very interesting neighborhood. And um, I believe that they, they really molded each of us and, and who we became. Um, had a lot to do with that upbringing. Yeah. T- tell me about, I know that your street actually is somewhat historic, um, one of the first to be um, a diversified community in the Philadelphia area. Can you talk about yes, that? Yes, actually, yeah. um, my, my parents worked very hard in their later years to make it uh, a designated historic neighborhood. And it was the first um, planned racially integrated neighborhood in Philadelphia and probably one of the first in the U.S. So it's unique in that it's right in the middle of Pennypack Park, which you know you can't build on. It's it's preserved, but they allowed for this, and it was just a very simple cul-de-sac street of only 19 homes. Uh, the homes were very different from anything else you might see in the Northeast, which is typically row houses and that sort of thing. So yeah. that in and of itself separate our environment, um, and it was very different from most of our friends' um, places that they grew up. Um, the trees were mo- pr- primarily preserved, and it was in the woods, and there was some to- topography to it. So there was a, a nice hill down to a pool, and the houses were inspired, or the architect that designed them was very much influenced by Frank Lloyd Wright, which was interesting. And I'm told that Louis Kahn was actually um, a consultant for that project. Okay. And I'm sure that somehow all of that had an influence on me becoming an architect, yeah. but I just didn't know it. <laughs> right, right. Well, the way you describe it, you know, is is it still the same today? It if is. You go, it is, so it's remained yes, the it same is. and mm-hmm. interesting. Yes. Um, of course, the trees are bigger now, right? It's, it's probably more beautiful. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I remember when we were very little, there was, it's a it's a lot of big oak trees. Yeah. And there was one particular tree that was right south, outside of our um, patio, on our patio, and it was an oak that had um, a heart and people's initials carved in it because, well, folklore says that it was a lover's lane back before oh, it became wow. a development. So there actually was a dirt road, and and couples would go there. And um, anyway, by the time I was grown up, the hearts were way high. Right. Couldn't read them or see them, <laughs> right. but, um, but they're still there. That's a measurement of the yes. growth of the tree. That's so interesting. So you are um, a self-proclaimed tomboy. Maybe not so much today as you were back then, but um, and and an overachiever. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm always curious to know um, where that developed in you. You know, literally, were you born that way, or is it something that was kind of introduced to you through your childhood and and mom and dad's direction or lessons? I was totally born that way. Totally born that way, yes. Tell me about (laughs) it. I'm pretty sure, yeah. I'm a big believer in um, genetics, and I believe there's a a predisposition for certain traits, and that was one that was very strong in me. And to this day, I'm I'm a competitive person, but I'm mostly competitive against myself, Mm. Um, not as much others, although that's fun too, but I know how to keep it in in check. Yeah, (laughs) well, that can be detrimental, right? We talk on the show often about, you know, 
the overachievers tend to sometimes um, get out of balance, right? You're just go, go, going and not taking time to kind of slow down and reflect. Where are you today in relation to where you were as a young girl growing up and, and being involved in everything that you were? That's a good question. Um, I think I'm probably still the same, but I, I do try to balance it a little bit more. Obviously, I don't have as many things going on in, in my life as I did when I was younger. I tried to join pretty much everything through mm -hmm. high school. Um, I do still have a lot of goals, and I'm very um, project-driven, so my, my work keeps me very busy, and um, I'm always trying to of course, do the best I can, but then outdo myself for the next project. So I don't know that I can ever change that within me. Yeah. So that is, that's interesting. So you're always competing against yourself to do better for the next project? Is it? Uh, yes. We're, and not just me. Um, of course, I'm not a solo practitioner. Right. Um, I work for SB Architects, and um, we have a great team. And it's I always say that architecture is a team sport, and it really is. Yeah. And each time we as a team try to, well, I don't even know if it's intentional, but we're always setting the bar higher and mm -hmm. higher and higher. And yeah. um, it gets hard to compete with yourself on that level after a certain <laughs> yes, period of time. Right. But, but we're always, you know, very, very proud of what we do. You know, j not to jump ahead, because we're going to talk about a lot, um, but you have risen to, you know, the highest level there at SB Architects as a principal. And um, I'm wondering if that was something that, you know, at that level, do you Take the time to be proud of your accomplishments, having risen from one level to the next to the next. Hmm. I think I'm more proud of what we do every day as opposed to my achievement, my personal achievement. Of course, it, it, it's nice, but it wasn't like I woke up one day and said I'm going to set out to be a principal of an architecture firm. It was never like that for me. Um, I just, I, I always do the best that I can. At least that's my goal. And if there's a void, I tend to just fill it up if I yes. see it coming my way. Yeah. And I've evolved through the firm, I think, um, like that. I just produce the work that I feel is great. I have uh, very high standards for myself and for my teams. And I believe that it's important to share all of that passion in our work so that every single person that's participating in the project feels very proud of what they've done. Yeah. So I still every You're sharing day feel, the yes, yeah, sharing the proud. It's so much more fun than just doing it by yourself. Yeah, yeah. So you went to Cornell University, um, which is not an easy school to get into, <laughs> and um, you received your degree in architecture, and it was then that you discovered karate. I did or karate. Should karate, I say yes. karate? <laughs> um, it's very interesting. I would say that's not the typical path for a young girl. So tell me what it was that piqued your interest when you discovered that club? Well, I, for some bizarre reason, even younger, when I was a young child, always fascinated by um, Japan and the culture. Don't even know why. But um, I was. And it was always in the back of my mind that I would love to try martial arts. But I was busy doing other things and couldn't do it. After my third year at Cornell, which was a very hard, intense program, um, where you were pretty much with your classmates 24-7, um, I felt a little bit stifled. Like, I, first of all, I had been very physically active, and then I wasn't for three years. So I felt like I really needed to do something. And one day, one of my classmates, or not one day, typically, she would come in um, from 
after being gone from the studio for a few hours and she looked all refreshed and she just drew as fast as anybody could draw and after about the third time I saw this I said where, where are you going and coming back where and are you coming you from so much? yeah exactly <laughs> Why did you, where'd you get this energy I've been to the coffee shop 10 times in the last <laughs> 10 minutes and, you're, and uh, turns out that there was a club on campus it was the only thing that fit into our schedules and she said oh you should come try it out it's a karate club they let me go an hour late and, and see what you think wow. so I went and it was it was just instant. I, I fell in, well, first of all, it was something that I could do that was physical and burn off some energy, which felt great. But then it turned out that it, it was a, um, the, the headquarters for the, that style. And there are many, many different styles of karate. So um, it was just a crapshoot. I had no idea what I was getting into. I thought there was one at the time. And come to find out that the headquarters was in Philadelphia. And the um, main sensei who is amazing sensei okazaki was here and so when i would come home on vacation i would train in philadelphia and when i was at school i would train at the college what was the name of the style of, that you practiced it's, um it's the japan it's shotokan style it's okay shotokan karate and the organization is the international shotokan karate federation which is part of the japan karate association so it's very very <clears throat> traditional japanese style okay there has to be some connection what you haven't figured out what it was that, that got you interested in Japan. I find that so fascinating. I wonder if it was something you, a book you picked up and read, or was I there a person you met in, you know, in your lifetime? My, I, I talked to my mom about that at great length, and we yeah. could never figure it out. But then wow. once I started training in the martial arts, then um, actually I was dating a Japanese man, and that, of course, piqued my interest even more. So I got very, very involved in the culture, and, and, yeah. then, and then it just kind of catapulted after that yeah that's so interesting hopefully one day you'll find out that there was something maybe you know? I would think I might have to it's, get regressed hypnotized yeah. or right something you to would figure that you out would. <laughs> um so in 1984 you decided to take a year off before starting you know your career in architecture and you in fact went to Japan and you had a part-time job at a law patent office mm -hmm. um what was the catalyst for that adventure that decision because that even if you were thinking about oh I'd love to go to Japan one day there had to be a moment where I'm just doing it well we I, made a plan when I was still in at, at the university with our I got a, my my friends were we were all very close-knit part of the karate group and I think I liked that because they were from all different walks of life they weren't just architects they were from all different schools and had different interests and I think that's what helped me survive my my last few years at Cornell actually because I like the diversity and um, we made a pact, since we were all graduating different years, that we were going to meet in 1984 in Tokyo. Wow. And as the end, this was probably in, I don't know, 1982 or three or something like that. Uh -huh. And um, as the years went by and people graduated and got their lives in order, they just were dropping like flies till it was down to me and, <laughs> and my one Mexican friend. And then he, he bailed at the last second. And I just said, I'm going. I'm wow. going to go anyway. By myself. By myself. Yeah, that's a big deal because you're not speaking the language and you're not, you know, the culture is completely different and off you went. Off I went. <laughs> With apprehension or excitement or what were you feeling? Both, I would say. Yeah, everything. But that was a year I decided to take off from um, before I started a proper architecture job because I knew I wouldn't get more than a week or two of vacation. And it was one of those countries I didn't want to go to for that short period of time. So I decided that I would take a year off and just travel and experience the culture, which I did. So um, 
the yen, um, the dollar was strong in comparison to the yen at that time. So for working three half days a week in this patent office, which I just lucked into. Yeah, how did you um, get that job? Tell me it how. was a really strange coincidence. Of course, I went to look, I was looking for an English teaching job, which back then could, you know, pay some bills. Mm-hmm. And um, I found one. And as it turned out, the um, kid who wanted to learn, his father was looking for a teacher. And he, his English was already better than my Japanese, so I, couldn't, I just couldn't teach him. But it, after talking to my friend who was translating for me, it turns out that he was a Cornell graduate from the engineering school. And he worked for this law patent office as an engineer. And once he heard the connection, he felt, as Japanese tend to do, very obligated that he find me something. Oh, is that right? <laughs> and he, yeah, he introduced me to the 82-year-old man who was the president of that company at the time. And they, they made me an offer to work there half days, three days a week. And it was enough to pay my rent. I traveled. I took sumi, ink painting, ikebana, all this kind of stuff. Wow. It was wonderful. Wow. Okay, so you were there for a year, mm-hmm. and um, when it was time to leave, how were you feeling? Um, yeah, I was ready to go home, I think, at were that time. Yeah. Um, I probably could have stayed forever. My mother felt she was worried that I would, so she actually came and picked me up. <laughs> <laughs> she spent the last three weeks with me and helped me pack and she? <laughs> physically brought me home. Yes. Right, right. That's far. Did, I, did anyone have an opportunity to come visit while you were there? My Family? mom and my sister. They did. Yes. Okay, good. Mm-hmm. And, uh, okay, so it's it's time to come back and, and yes. you know, get a real job from your, from your degree and... Um, your first job returning home was with Maria Romanock. Yes. Is that Romanock? Mm-hmm. Romanock. Romanock. Yeah. Um, who happened to be an ex-professor of yours at Cornell, which yes. is wonderful. Um, was she someone you would call a mentor in Absolutely. your life? Absolutely. Yeah. Tell yes. me about her. And your um, she's still in Philadelphia. She's still a practicing architect, and she's, I believe, still working out of the same brownstone that I worked in when I was there. And uh, we became friends when she was a professor, as I mentioned. Um, at Cornell, and because we both lived in Philadelphia, we shared rides back and forth okay. um, when we had vacation and stuff like that. So we got pretty close. Was there a big age difference between the two of you? Not big. I think no. she's only about ten years, maybe, mm-hmm. older than me. And um, so we continued our relationship. When I was looking for work, she was happy to hire me, and it was nice. It was a small firm, which was perfect for my initial You're <laughs> orientation. Starting at, yeah, yeah. And um, it, well, w- it was great because it was very homey, and she did some nice projects, and it just it felt very comfortable. Part of my job description was to walk the dog, of course, as well, which oh. was great. <laughs> <laughs> and what kind of clients did she have? Was it residential, commercial? Um, or? It was some commercial. Um, I know some things with the university. Her father was the dean of the architecture school at Penn. Um, he had passed away. But um, so she had a background in architecture. Oh, wow. Her family, they were originally from Cuba. Okay. Is the, is the, just kind of going back for a second, is the program, architectural program um, at Cornell as intense as perhaps um, a law degree? Hmm. I don't know. Um, it's maybe intense, but in a different way. Mm-hmm. Uh, the professional architecture program is, is a five-year program, and it's, it's intense that you work a lot of hours, and I have my own philosophy about that. Tell which me is, about that. Well, I, I don't think it's just architecture, but I do believe that most creative fields, because they're creative, there's no finite end, you know? Right. So, for example, if I get an assignment to design a building, um, I can design it, and then I can say, I'm really not happy with it, and I think I'm going to try something else, and I'm going to keep going. And I can try 10 different mm-hmm. iterations of this 
thing until I feel like I'm happy with it or maybe I'm never happy with it. But if you're studying for law or medicine, and I, I could be wrong, like I said, I haven't studied those things, but I feel like at least in, at the college stage, you're asked to read a certain amount of material, to learn a certain amount of material, and to regurgitate, regurgitate that material, and then you get graded on it, and you evolve. And I'm sure there are some creative aspects to all of those professions, but whether it's um, architecture or art or writing, it's all you on you. Mm. And um, of course, there were some people in the class that just checked the boxes of what needed to be delivered, and then there were others that would deliberate. <laughs> and work through the night many, many nights in a yeah. row. And, uh, but that seemed to be more the norm, yeah. the people working through the night. I, I, my daughter's a photographer, so I have a creative of, of one of my two. And she's very hard on herself. And I would imagine it's hard to ever get to the point where, I, where you say, this is perfect and it's exactly the way you I want it to there. be. <laughs> right? When you're designing or creating something, there's always, right. <laughs> you're always molding it and it's evolving. And yes. Yeah. yeah. Is that something that's hard for you? Is that one of your personal challenges to kind of, you know, get to a point where you say, this, this is good enough? It is my biggest personal challenge in life and everything, yes. Yeah. I, and I do think that's another thing I was born with. I was before just born a perfectionist, a perfectionist. and oh, so the dreaded perfectionist. I, yes yeah. I know my, my mother was actually aware of this when I was very young and tried to tame it and probably I'd be a lot worse than I am now if it wasn't for her so <laughs> <laughs> this is the improved version I think are you the only perfectionist <laughs> of the three children um I think in a in so, on some level um I think perfectionism comes out in different ways in different people mm -hmm. um I know that my sister, she's a she's a, an artist, a printmaker, actually, and she is very hard on herself. But um, she doesn't need to have every, you know, her house in order like I do all the time. So oh there are little differences oh, like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, you have it at work and at home? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a battle. But. Well, you happen to have a 13-year-old son. I do. Are you seeing some of yourself in him? Um, no, we're very different, actually. Oh, we look alike. Go. Okay. <laughs> but our personalities are very different, and I do still pick up his room all the time. You do? <laughs> now, wait a minute. He's 13. It's yeah, I know. I know. I know. I've got to cut it's that time. out. <laughs> it is time. Um, listen, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsors. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit about, um, I had mentioned to you before the show, an architect in, I believe it was Switzerland. I'm not exactly sure. But talking about the labeling of female a, B, C, or D. So we're going to talk about that when we come back. We'll be right back. Hey, this is Michael Bertoni, founder and CTO of Philly Tech. I'm throwing the first annual Philly Tech Community Holiday Party at Coda in Rittenhouse Square, Philadelphia on Wednesday, December 13th from 6 to 9 p.m. This party will be a celebration of technology and innovation happening throughout the greater Philadelphia region, and everyone is invited. You'll have the opportunity to learn more about the tech scene in Philly, network and praise our achievements, while giving back to littles within Big Brothers Big Sisters of Philadelphia. 20% of the dollars raised in the event will go towards buying holiday gifts for Littles in Big Brothers Big Sisters and putting a big smile on their faces during the holidays. Here's what you can expect at the holiday party. We'll kick off with a live comedy show called Good Joke, Bad Joke, Bingo by comedian Sean Wickens. The first 100 people to arrive go into a drawing to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Enjoy free open bar, free buffet, and DJ from 6 to 9 p.m. 
Tickets are only $20 on Eventbrite by searching in Philadelphia for first annual Philly Tech Community Holiday Party or going to my website at phillytech.co. Make sure it's phillytech.co. Looking forward to seeing you there. This is Kristen Hillsley, financial advisor of the Foley Hillsley Group, with a big announcement. Last fall, I hosted a women's lifestyle conference to help the women who do it all take control of their finances. Now I'm excited to an- announce a new partnership with Women to Watch Media to help show women how to own their financial future. We'll have newsletter articles, blog posts, announcements of live events, and a lot more. All available at womentowatch.net and our own website, foleyhillsleygroup.com. I'm thrilled about this new partnership, and I look forward to being your resource for all things financial. Stay tuned to learn more or visit our website at foleyhillsleygroup.com. The Foley Hillsley Group is affiliated with Robert W. Baird and Company, member SIPC. Log on to foleyhillsleygroup.com to learn more. That's F-O-L-E-Y-H-I-L-L-S-L-E-Y group.com. Or call 610-238-6636. Since 1858, Mount St. Joseph Academy has been educating girls to be leaders, founders, and independent thinkers. Students are taught to be collaborative, courageous, compassionate, confident, and spiritual. In this student-centered environment, the young women are transformed by recognizing their own potential and are encouraged to use it to make a difference in the world. To learn more about Mount St. Joseph Academy, go to www.msjacad.org or call 215-233-3177. That's msjacad.org or 215-233-3177. Welcome back, everyone, to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB, Talk 860, and womentowatch.net. My name is Sue Rocco, and I'm joined this afternoon by Jory Shoshana Friedman. And Jory is the principal with SV Architects based in Miami. And uh, we were talking about Jory's upbringing, um, her battle to not be a perfectionist, (laughs) which I'm not sure at this point you're going to be able to beat, but it certainly has um, had positive you know, effects on where you have landed in your career and, um, you know, the joy with which you work, which is is always the most important. And um, just before the break, I mentioned to you, there there was an article um, written by um, a woman architect in Switzerland. And basically, the the gist of the article was about the fact that she didn't want to be labeled a female architect. She said, I'm just an architect. And this comes up in a lot of conversations and, and on, on the show as well. Whether or not we should be, label, be labeling women, no matter what their title is, saying female or woman in front of that title. Um, and I just wanted to know your views on that. You know, you are the first female uh, principal at this firm. That's something to be proud of, right? Yes. Um, would you be offended to be called the first female architect or do you want to just be another architect? Honestly, I, I until that came up, I hadn't really. It didn't bother me. I kind of liked it. I thought I felt proud um, because it, it has taken some time for women to evolve professionally, and particularly in architecture, it's still at, at my level. It's still very much a man's field. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm finding, but at the same time, I 
I, I understand where she's coming from completely. Like, why would you specify with any other profession a lawyer? Is, it doesn't matter. That, that Does the gender matter? It shouldn't. It should, it should be how they do their job and do they do their job well, regardless of that. Right. Yet, by the same token, there's another part of me that says, well, but men and women are different. We're physical, physiologically different, and um, I think that our approaches to things are different. Right. So... Why is there anything wrong in saying that? I feel saying like. what it is exactly. Yeah, exactly. yeah. I think it's a, yeah, it's a debate we'll probably be having for a while, and and we could do a whole show um, oh, yes. on it. <laughs> um, but I thought it was interesting that it, you know it had to be with uh, around architecture. Tell me what the um, statistics are with your firm, women and men. How many? We are. I think <clears throat> we, so. Our, we have two. Our two main offices are Miami and San Francisco, and we're pretty equal in numbers right now. And I. I'm almost positive we're about a 50-50 mix, okay. which I think is great. And yeah. our Miami office right now, I believe, has more women than men, slightly. So um, it, it says something different, that it's changing, right? The profession's changing, and there are a lot more women graduating with architecture degrees and going into the profession, which is very exciting. Yeah. Um, and, um, but You've I know seen that, that yourself, right, at your own oh, firm? Oh, yeah. Yeah, people definitely. applying. Absolutely. And, uh, but yet I know since I'm on the front end and doing interviews, obviously, to bring new staff and when that happens, um, we, we look at the person. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter whether they're male or female. It's what their credentials are and even more so how they fit into our culture because that's very important to us as a firm. Do you think that this career could be something a woman could do part-time? Uh, it's interesting. We've had women who have come in with a lot of talent, and uh, they they come in at, at it wanting to do it full-time, and then they get married, and they start a family. And I've found that that can be a deterrent for some women mm-hmm. who have told me that they feel like they're being half an architect and half a mother, and they just can't come to grips with that duality, and others can. So I think it's a very personal thing and a very personal choice. But I feel like the women who have been successful doing both uh, have to have uh, someone in their lives, whether it's a significant other or an extended family, uh, whatever you want to call it, a village. Um, You need to have them for support. And uh, I was a person who was lucky enough to have a very supportive husband um, who supports my career and has a more flexible schedule and has taken the lion's share of chauffeuring our son around and that sort of thing. And I I think that's important, and that's probably why the attrition rate for women is still a little bit higher than men. Yeah. Um, I I wanted to take a step back for a second. We were talking about your, you know, your lifelong devotion to to karate and how it has helped. I wanted to know what it does for you personally um, with your really a high-powered career and position at this firm, being a mom, being a wife. Um, How does it help you kind of maintain your, we'll use the dreaded word, balance. (laughs) (laughs) It's a great word. And actually, I'm not practicing now, so I feel a a little bit of an imposter Um, at the moment. I I had to stop training and teaching when my black belt, which normally wraps around twice, only wrapped around once when I was eight months (laughs) pregnant. And then it didn't wrap around at all. And it couldn't wrap around. You thought, I can't wear it. I can't do it. No, that that was it. I hung it up for a while. And then I just literally didn't have enough time between raising our son and my career, which at that point was was doing better. Um, I couldn't 
rationalize, taking the time out of my day. Now my instructor, if he's listening, will really be mad at me because he said it only takes 10 minutes a day <laughs> to stick with it. <laughs> but I'm hoping, you know, maybe I can pick it up again now that my son's becoming more independent and a teenager and all Well, that. that's what so, happens. It, you yeah. know, everything comes full circle. But it did help me it, a lot with yeah. um, balance. It really... I think it saved me when I was at Cornell. It just gave me that um, physical outlet. They, there's a lot of discipline involved um, in it. You went very far with it. I should mention, right? I mean, I, I was, yeah, I was hooked. Yeah, <laughs> um, but weren't you training for um, the whatever the um, not? The, I'm not going to say Olympics, but the no, no, no. Um, so it, the, our style had uh, international. It was an international organization. Yeah. Is. And so I was on the U.S. team for kata, which are forms, um, from, let's see, 1996 until I was 41 when I retired. Wow, so, wow. Yeah, no, that's exciting. impressive. It was fun. Yeah. It was fun. As, as I said, I'm a little competitive, so that part excited me, and I, I liked the team competition better than anything else. Yeah. It was very rewarding. So tell me what you do today on those days when you, you, know, you need to be um, away from the office and you just want to do something that will... Oh, I, st- I exercise. I yeah. still, yes. I, Are you a runner? Did you, I, I, I wasn't. I became you one. You look like a runner. No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I never liked running. I still don't yeah. think I like running. I do it because it's something I can do when I have time yeah. and, and my own schedule. So yeah. sometimes I do that. Um, have you ever, this is kind of a, not really a loaded question, but with everything that's been in the news lately um, around women and sexual harassment and, and abuse in different fields, were you ever um, bullied by a contractor? I had read that sometimes that can occur for women in your field. Did you ever have that situation? No, I've you never, never had did. that experience. Yeah. Maybe they got word that I had a black belt on That's know. right. <laughs> Of course you were. <laughs> it's not something I announce. So, uh, it could be, but you know, which has any of the, uh, the women you've ever worked with, or the women that have worked for you, had a situation where you had to address that, you um, know, in not support that I've of them? Heard of. No, although I've heard of situations like that, yeah. and honestly, I'm more in the um, design phase of architecture, so I'm not the one that's on the in the field on the construction site all the time. We have people that really do that on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Um, but even then, I haven't really heard anything. That's great. And, that and, and you've been treated equally by any, any number of clients. I'm wondering if some clients were, you know, just traditionally uh, were met by male architects, and then you walk in the door. And that I have are. experienced, but not in the U.S. We work internationally, mm-hmm. so there have been other cultures that it's, it's a – um, it's never really been a big issue because I'm usually accompanied by other men in my firm. Yeah. But I, I could notice a difference. Put it that way. Yeah. And how did you address it? You just you I you're there. You knew what you were doing, right. and you weren't going to let it interfere. No. Yeah. Right. Um, tell me about your views on women's empowerment. Is something that obviously it's at the core of what what we do here. And when I think about 2018, 2017 has been an incredibly exciting year for women. We've seen so many firsts, and organizations have launched to offer resources and um, just be a support system for women who want to do something perhaps um, more than the you know be a mom and, and be a wife. Um, what are you hopeful for in 2018? What would you like to see for women that falls under that empowerment arena? Well, I, I, as I mentioned in my, in my own career, in my own office, I see it. I see the evolution, and I'm fully supportive. And probably because I am 
a female in a leadership position, I'm hoping that I'm leading by example and that I'm inspiring other women in our firm to realize that they they can follow in my footsteps and still have a family and do everything that they've ever aspired to do without hesitation. Yeah. And I, I, I hope that I am there for those people. Yeah, I'm sure you are because you're leading. You are leading by example. Do you see um, that the barriers are being lifted, and you know the things that were in place historically, um, that perhaps women are in a different place today where they can just really fully bring themselves to um, their jobs and their careers and not worry about the the stereotypes. I'll say. I would hope so. It's hard for me to judge because I have been with SB Architects for 23 years. So we've grown up together. And um, so I have my little world and I see that world. And I know that I have never felt or seen any kind of um, discrimination for women in our firm. And it's the same level of encouragement regardless of gender. So in my world, it all seems wonderful and peachy, yeah. and um, I don't see any impediments, and I hope that that's true of other firms. Yeah. I would love to know a typical day for you. What does that look like? And and I want to mention, so our listeners know that a big chunk of your business is with luxury hotel brands. Yes. Um, so you do a lot of work there, but you also are doing work for other entities. But what, what is a typical day like for you? Um, I'm an early riser. Okay. Um, I usually get up around five. I go to a place nearby to work out at five thirty. I get home it's at dark. Is yes. It do- yes. Okay, you're getting up in the dark. Okay. <laughs> and um, that usually gets me going. Um, I I go home. I get back. I get to the office about pretty early, seven thirty latest, and I start my day. Uh, we start typically at eight. We have an unusual schedule. We work eight to six every day. So, but that early morning hour or so is always my most precious because I'm uninterrupted. And um, I, I work a lot, uh, well, there's a lot of principal kind of stuff that I have to do that I didn't have to do before. Oh, okay. um, Other than my, design, you're doing exactly. taking all the responsibilities. No, I, most yeah. of that is passed on. So now I'm really mentoring the junior staff, which I love too. I've always loved teaching and, and mentoring. And I'm... I enjoy the design aspect too much to ever fully remove myself. So I I do like to stay very, very involved, even if I'm not doing all the drawings anymore or even a fraction of them. Yeah. Um, but I do like to stay involved with the team and, and stay very close with the designers and offer help if and when I can. But they're getting so good. They don't need me anymore. They maybe. don't need you. <laughs> do you have a... Um, what is your leadership style? Do you have a mantra, something that you share with um, with your team to help them stay focused, motivated, happy in their work? I, I like them to love what they do. I think it's important that whatever part of architecture they're doing is something they're passionate about. And we are pretty good about listening to our staff so that if they ever feel like they're in a rut or being pigeonholed for one particular aspect, that they can always grow within the firm and I always tell them to stay flexible and be good team members and um, actually I always think of this one thing that my karate instructor did say to me that I always thought was funny which was don't get big head you lose balance and fall over on your face (laughs) (laughs) and I always kind of I think of that and I think that applies to just about anybody in any profession but as long as we can keep our egos intact I think that we're all better for it so 
don't get a big head, you'll lose your balance and fall over. So that, yeah. I love that. I love that. I'm, I'm going to write that down. <laughs> I'm going to say that to my kids. <laughs> um, something else we were talking about before the show that I just think is, is interesting and a sign of the times is um, communities are changing. And so we're seeing, as far as development and and architecture and design and, you know, share what you envision the future to be um, when some of the malls go away and, and a lot of these, you know, retirement communities are coming up and they're being uh, built as combinations of retail and, and living space and, you know, yeah, what do you envision for 2018 in, in development? Well, that's definitely happening in the mixed-use environment. We see a lot of it. A facet of our work is, is mixed-use and, you um, it's almost like turning the mall inside out. People don't want to be stuck inside this mall anymore. And what's really successful these days are little urban environments where people can walk out and um, they can shop or they live right near where they shop or they work. And um, those are becoming very popular alongside of um, hospitality, which is um, an industry that's also reinventing itself in a way. Uh, we have a lot of trending towards smaller units in hotels sometimes. We have micro units uh, for, you know, it's different different environments call for different things if it's urban or if it's a resort area. But uh, there is something definitely changing that's exciting. The boutique hotel uh, industry is really uh, evolving, mm-hmm. and people like to get full experiences. It's not about going to that big box hotel and knowing what you're going to, you know, knowing exactly what you're going to get. It's going someplace and really figuring out how, you know, it's, it's brought to you in a way that you're experiencing the full culture and the environment. And if, if the hotel or, or a resort, sometimes we do, we do a lot of campus style resorts where it's not just a hotel, it's got a spa and a convention center and it's got all these different pieces, which makes the architecture of it really fun and exciting to design. Plus you want to design it to fit into that culture, Mm -hmm. whatever that is. So you get to research and study. And so it's, it's, it's a very exciting job. I'm very lucky. How far into the nitty-gritty of the details do you get? I mean, when I think about architecture and architects, they're really designing the uh, the building itself, right? But yes. today, as you're describing, some of these um, designs and rooms and spaces have changed so much since, you know, back in the day. So how far into the, I guess, you know, the details of a space do you get very, In other words, very far. Very far. Because <laughs> yes. there's an architect, there's a designer, and then there's a decorator, let's say. Right? So, we, so we we are architects, so right. we, we stop at the drywall, more or less, and the um, interior designers that we partner with mm-hmm. will work out the interiors. But it's very collaborative. Right. So from early design on, they're already involved. So are the landscape architects. It yes, really does take right. a village to build a village, there's no doubt. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. And um, so everybody has knows what their role is, and mm-hmm. it's it's sometimes it amazes me how much goes into getting a building built. I can imagine. So you have to be very, um, it's a, you know, the word collaborative is used all day long today, and, and in that industry you are really needing to be collaborative with so many different Absolutely. people, right? We're all so, codependent um, yeah. to get the job done. Yes. But there's so many creative minds coming together. Mm, so yes. sometimes that can be ego-driven. How do you, gosh, how do you maneuver that? It's not without its challenges, but uh, we try to team up with groups that are like-minded, and uh, that Flexible. all makes it a lot smoother. Yes, yeah. right. What's one of the greatest challenges, for other than being a perfectionist, 
um, something that you find uh, not from a professional development standpoint but a personal development standpoint is is an ongoing challenge for you that you find you're working on um it's hmm. a hard question I know you and I talked earlier about you kind of put your head down and you just keep moving forward and if you're a an, uh, an achiever, somebody who always likes to have something in the works and you're always trying to perfect it. You just kind of have your head down to the grindstone and it's pull it back up and you ask that question. It's a little bit difficult. I know that in general, whatever it is I'm doing, um, I like to just attack it full on, always give it 110% or why bother is kind of how I feel about it. So. Do you, so I'll ask you this then, do you, when something doesn't go the way you plan, mm -hmm. do you cut yourself some slack or do you, will that worry you or upset you for the remainder of the week? Can you let it go? I can let it go. You I've learned how good. to let it go. Yes. Yeah. yeah I actually, my, I, I learned very young. My mother was very good at whenever I would have my mini crises or whatever it was your meltdown crises when we're jour. little it's a meltdown <laughs> exactly <laughs> um, she would always tell me to take a, a deep breath and a big step back and put it all in perspective and what's the worst that can happen and once you've come to grips with the worst which is typically failure then and you you know say okay that's not so bad I just get up and I do it again or I do something else then yeah. it's not so bad it's an important lesson, isn't it? I yes. think for all of us, not for women. No, it's everybody. For, for everyone, that um, there is always a lesson in the, you know, you try, you fail, there's a lesson. Yes. You try, yes. you succeed, there's a lesson. Always. Right? And, yeah, you learn that failure is not so bad, that change isn't so bad, all of it. You just embrace it and you go. Yeah. Tell me the kind of conversations you have with your son. So you have a 13-year-old son. Mm -hmm. what, what does he want to be when he grows up? I know I he doesn't know yet, but maybe no, does, he, does he have an area that he's interested in? Um, I think technology. Um, he, as much as I tried to get him to draw. <laughs> <laughs> I you mean, kept putting the pencils oh, in his I hand. Oh, I had art supplies. I tried everything, and, you know, he, he, it just wasn't him. And wasn't I remember calling my mom all panicked. I said, Mom. Jake, he doesn't. He doesn't want to. He doesn't seem to like art. What am I going like, to this do? Because all three of us were raised in an arts and crafts project oriented, and we all ended up in art fields. So this is all I know. So I didn't know. I said, he must be taking after Bruce because he seems to like science and math. I wanted and to add, your husband. What does he? Yeah. What is well, he's his actually field? in theater. He teaches oh. theater, which is creative. Oh yeah. Yes. But he has a, He also has a math mind. Um, okay. So it must be coming from there. Yeah. But um, I think that uh, his bent will be more towards technology, engineering, something like that. I have the feeling that technology is going to be a really good field to well, be Well, my in. mother's reaction was, thank God, finally somebody in the family who will learn, earn a decent living, is what she said. Well, the, the fact is, technology is in, it's in your field as well, right? I mean, it you're is. using it to design. I, yes, I, more and more. that's a good question. Yeah, are, how much is... Are you still doing freehand, you know, sitting down at a drafting table with a pencil? And there how much are very the few, as, few of us who still do that, but we do exist, and clients still love it. Um, I bet. So yeah. we do both. We, in our firm, we actually do both. We have a handful of designers that will still draw, and then but we have the the aid of you know very quick 3D visualization, which right. is useful as a study tool like we've never had before. So um, it's it's pretty. I mean, once you learn the tools and you learn how to use them to the best of your ability, then sometimes it's quicker to draw 
certain things at an early stage, and sometimes it's better to get it right into three dimensions in the computer for the client to understand. So in the idea phase, when you're, you're envisioning, I would imagine you, you would want to start with a pen or pencil. I, I can't do it any other way. Yeah. Um, I've tried. <laughs> and um, I don't know, my brain to hand is very important for me. But I've seen other people very successfully just go straight to whether it's AutoCAD or another program and um, sketch up modeling and they can do it. But for me, I, I need to at least get a certain amount on paper first. Yeah. And once I feel like, okay, I think this is working, because it's much faster for me. But mm -hmm. I didn't grow up in that generation either. That's right. So. I know. Imagine where the, our kids' generation is going to be completely different. They, you know, they, uh, they're not even is. taught cursive. Right? I know. They don't write. It's all. No, I can't read my son's writing. It's terrible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing, right? Some people won't be writing at all. True. Yeah. They won't need to. Um, tell me. One of my favorite questions is is really what keeps you up at night. And when I ask that, I'm what, I want to know what what is something that you worry about? Most of the time I can fall asleep very easily and quickly. I'm a, I've been accused of even falling asleep mid-sentence. The staying asleep <laughs> part is hard for Hopefully me. Hopefully not when you're in front of a client. <laughs> no. No, just at home with my husband. But yeah. um, but. Uh, the nights that I can't sleep, it's usually work-related. It's usually that work. I'm just, it's a perfect storm of things and client issues and whatever, you know, typical work problems that all come together at once and yeah. they'll keep me. And then sometimes it's a design problem. I still have that where I can't solve, I, there's something that's hard to solve and I'll just be thinking about it as I fall asleep. And there's maybe one or two times in my life where I've actually woken up and said, I I think I solved it in my oh, sleep. Right. Most of the time, it's ridiculous, and I did not solve <laughs> I it. I do wake up but with ideas. <laughs> I, I'll be yeah, right out of a dead sleep. But and every I once in a while, write it, write it's like, it God, down. it was so simple. It was right yeah. in front of me. I didn't know it. Have you ever designed um, a home? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Your own or? Well, I'm working on that. <laughs> an addition to our house. Yeah, a very small okay. one. Okay. Um, but it's it's a process and. I think whenever architects do their own place, it's always at the bottom of their list of things to get done. Yes, so yes, yes. Uh, I think I started this in 2006. So uh, I have a sister-in-law <laughs> who's a designer, a uh, very successful designer, and she talked about remodeling her kitchen for the past, <laughs> I don't know, 10 years. years yeah. Yes, exactly. But surprised. she finally did it. We're all so oh, happy yay. for her. <laughs> it is, yes. Um, we have one minute left, and I just want to give you an opportunity to, you know, just... Um, Share with the listeners what you see as a benefit for having more women in those top roles, in the executive seats, on the boards, um, in policy-making roles. Why, okay. why do we want that? I think we want it because I, I believe, as I mentioned earlier, that women and men are built differently. And when I see coming to the table a balance of both women and men, that seems to be the best balance because there's just uh, a natural um, I mean, this is generalization, but I think women just have a different approach and a different way of dealing with people. Yeah. And I think that that plays a good role in any field. Yeah. And I think it has a very calming effect, and I think that can't be bad. Very good. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you so you, much, Susan. Jory, for joining me this no, afternoon. I, really, I appreciate it. It was great fun. Thank you. That's it, everyone, for another week of Women to Watch. Have a great week.